Well, it was with great surprise that I opened my emails <clears throat> back in January and uh, found an email from the mission director inviting me to preach. I hadn't seen that one coming. <clears throat> and uh, this week, as my voice has been very, very weak uh, with, with the virus, I wondered whether I was going to be able to, but we'll see how we go. Um, um, when Daryl emailed me, I was actually preaching through Malachi in Dicot, um, and this verse sort of fastened on my conscience straight away, uh, Malachi 1.11. So if you've got a Bible, please have it open there. If you're scrolling on your phone, you want to be in Malachi, you want, might want to be whipping back to Exodus soon, but uh, if you've got a Bible, you'll be, you'll be fine. Can't put a finger in Exodus when you're on your phone, can you? So there you go. <clears throat> Malachi 1.11 says, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Old Testament begins, more or less, with a great commission. When God begins dealing with Abraham, he starts by giving him a great commission in Genesis 12 Verses 1 to 3. God tells Abraham, as he is at that stage, uh, to go to a place that God will show him. And Abraham didn't know where that was, so he set out, not knowing where he was going. And God promised him in that great commission to make of him a great nation. And a nation with a mission. You will be a blessing. And ultimately, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the Old Testament story is all about the fulfillment of that promise, isn't it? Making a family into a nation, redeeming that nation from uh, slavery in Egypt through the, ex the, the Exodus uh, and the Passover, uh, and leading them to the promised land where the kingdom of Israel was established. And King Solomon, when he became king, was empowered by God to build a temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was dedicated to the name of God. It was the place where God put his name. In other words, God's reputation, God's honor, was bound up with the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that all sounded terribly exciting when, when King Solomon dedicated the temple. But almost straight away, the people of Israel started turning away from God to idolatry. There is this lovely golden shining temple, and already they are turning away from God to idols that they can see. And that led eventually to exile. And after the exile, when the temple had been destroyed, they came back to Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah, and they rebuilt the temple, not nearly as glorious as it had been before. And life still continued to go downhill. And by the time we get to the book of Malachi, that's really where things are. At the end of the Old Testament, if you like, the story has run into the sand. What is God doing? Where are God's promises now? How can this all have happened as it is? <clears throat> the uh, spiritual leaders of Israel had turned their back on God. And God speaks through Malachi. All the words here 
in Malachi are God speaking, and Malachi is writing them down, and there is, if you like, a dialogue between God and the people. God is putting words into the people's mouths, which obviously are abundantly true, um, and he tells them something really shocking. They are offering sacrifices in the temple that are not fit to be offered there. They profaned his name. They called their duties a burden. And God says this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> this is an extraordinary thing for the God who wants to be worshipped to say. He says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Now, you might think at that point that God has given up on them completely. <laughs> you know, it's over, folks. This is the end of the Old Testament, the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. God's done with us. And that might sound a bit familiar for how things are today here in Britain and in the West generally. What have we got? We have corrupt spiritual leaders who pervert God's truth, who glorify wickedness, who abuse their position, who abuse those who are in their care, those they are meant to serve, leaders who destroy entire networks of churches. Meanwhile, in the culture around us that was once so shaped by Christianity, any residual vestiges of the gospel in our culture are giving way to a culture of hate and fear and despair. Look at the huge levels of mental health problems there are in young people. What a terrible indictment on a secular culture. And the only God that is left is money and all. Call it money, call it self, call it what you will. Our homes are our temples, aren't they? That's what all the advertising on TV is focused on, making your home into your wonderful temple. What could God possibly have to say into that situation? Well, exactly what he says in Malachi 1, verse 11. You see, this is the remarkable thing. After he says in verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors and just shut up and stop it. He then says this in verse 11. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And this is God's, if you like, second great commission of the Old Testament. He begins it and he ends it with two great statements. This is God's mission manifesto of what God will do in the New Testament through his Son and what he's still doing today through your church, through mine through the mission that we're involved in, through all the work that he's doing to extend his kingdom. And I think actually what you've got here in verse 11 is a brilliant summary of Christian mission. This is what we are about. So I want to make five affirmations, the last two rather shorter than the first three, five affirmations that we can make from this verse about 
the nature of mission, and they should come up on the screen in turn. First of all, the motivation for mission is the glory of God. The motivation for mission is the glory of God, for God says, my name will be great. My name will be great. Now just go back to Exodus. I said we'd go back to Exodus. And just think about how God reveals his name. Someone has recently said, Exodus is, is the book in which God makes himself known. He makes himself known to Moses at the burning bush when he calls him. And what does he say to him? He says, this is my name. I am Yahweh, the Lord, from generation to generation, the unchanging, faithful God. This is the name I want you to say to the people of Israel. This is the name by which I am to be known. But then he also goes to Pharaoh, the last person you would expect uh, to, to actually hear anything from God because of his unbelief. And God says through Moses, this is what you are to say to, to, to Pharaoh. Chapter 9 and verse 16 of Exodus. I have raised you up, you, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. You see, God is determined, not just that Israel comes to know his name, but that all the nations of the earth will know that he alone is the one true living God, the holy God, whose name, whose reputation, whose, whose glory must always be worshipped. So when he gives Moses and Israel the Ten Commandments, he tells them that his name is not to be taken in vain, it's not to be misused. And whenever Israel went on their journeys, they were to build an altar. And the altar was the place where they worshipped God and where his name was to be honored. So chapter 20, verse 24, they build an altar, wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. God's name was honored when they built an altar and offered a sacrifice to him. Now, when you go through the story of Exodus, you come to Mount Sinai, of course, but then you also, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and discovers while he's been receiving the law and the instructions for building the tabernacle, the people of Israel have made a golden calf. They have dishonored the name of God and they have turned to worship an idol made of gold. And so Moses goes back up the mountain to intercede with God. And pleads for God to show him his glory. But God says, no, this is what I will do. I will proclaim my name to you. And this is the name. I love these words. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is our God. I mean, he says much more than that. But that's the essence of it, isn't it? And you hear it echoing again and again through the Psalms and through the prophets. This is our God. He is a God of power and glory whose power was shown in the plagues in Egypt. He's the God who brought them through the Red Sea. He is the God who is also compassionate and gracious. And he wants all nations to know both his power and his grace and all the rich meaning that is caught up in his name. That is what is, if you like, the freight that is loaded onto these five words. In Malachi 1.11, my name will be great. Now, of course, God has 
ultimately in New Testament terms, revealed himself not just through the words of the prophets, but through a person, through his son. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. We can never see the, the glory and the beauty and the grace and the truth of God more clearly than we have seen it in Jesus. In his words, in his works, in his death, in his resurrection, God's glory has been fully revealed. The word became flesh and we have seen his glory. Full of grace and truth. <clears throat> you know the tragedy is this. There are billions of people in the world who do not know that name. The world has a population approaching 8 billion. We're not exactly sure. It's growing fast. But there are billions of people who have never heard a presentation of the gospel. There is a deep spiritual ignorance in our own country. The young people of our country, the children of our country, are getting far less exposure to Christianity in school than they ever were. It's very different to when I started in ministry and I could go into three different primary schools and you know, essentially teach the gospel to, I guess, a thousand primary school children in Suffolk. Those days are gone for most places in this country. We are dealing with huge spiritual ignorance. And our calling is to proclaim his name as the only name, the name of Jesus, through which we must be saved. And there are so many opportunities that are going begging. I don't know if you were in the radio session this afternoon and you, you saw uh, Phil's video of all the different countries affected by the... Um, the, the uh, Wagner forces and the, the uprisings that they're stirring up in, in Sudan and Mali and Niger and, and, and so on. But just to the east of them on the coast is Senegal. It's wide open to missionaries. Lots of refugees from those other countries will, will flee there. It's more than 90% Muslim. It's wide open to missionaries. But hardly anybody goes to serve there. And the church is tiny. I haven't met Hanson so far today. Are you here tonight, Hanson? Um, or has he had to... Oh, he's up there. We will catch up afterwards. <laughs> uh, we have, a, obviously, as a mission, a huge heart for India. I don't know if you're aware of this. Uttar Pradesh is one state in India. It's in the north of India, below the Himalayas. It has a population in one state of a quarter of a billion people. 250 million people. Now, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody in your church. It's very difficult for a Brit to get a visa to go to India. But maybe there's somebody in your church who was born in India. We have someone in our church who was born in Sri Lanka. So it's quite likely you might have someone born in India who is therefore, as an Indian citizen, entitled to go back and serve there. There are something like 200 unreached people groups just in Uttar Pradesh. I hope you really enjoyed the radio presentation as much as I did this afternoon because, you see, as someone who's lived more than a decade in GBM Mission Center, I've always been of the view that GBM Mission Center is built on a golden egg. And I'm not referring to the ruins of the old abbey. <clears throat> the golden egg is the purpose-built radio studios in the sort of semi-basement. You have to go a long way down to get to them. 
Um, and they were built in the 1970s for recording. There are three recording studios there. Have you got somebody in your church who is first language Farsi speaking, or Urdu speaking, or Arabic speaking? Think of the countries that are you know, home to those languages, and think of how we think of them as closed. But ponder how, how our radio studios could be used to take the name of God to the darkest parts of those countries. Maybe God is calling someone in your church to take on a ministry like that. A lot of the work of radio and, and, and media ministry happens at a desk upstairs. So there's plenty more room and plenty of time for more people to come into the studios downstairs and record in other languages. I'd love to see that growing and multiplying. Think of other situations. What's going to happen in Ukraine as and when finally we pray the war is over? Think of the traumatized people that are going to be there and how you could bring the grace of God to their wounded minds and lives. What is it? Something like 10,000 amputees. I've lost track of the number of soldiers who've been deeply wounded in that conflict. Think of the same in Israel. How could we work with the, ch the churches in Israel to show grace in a culture that is so eaten up by vengeance? And maybe if Hamas is driven out of, of Gaza, who knows what might be possible in Gaza? If you're a medic, maybe you could go and serve in that Christian hospital in Gaza City when this terrible war is over. These are doors that we think of, they might be closing, but they might actually be opening. Now, in each of those cases... You've got to weigh the risk and the difficulty with the weight of God's glory. That's the thing, isn't it? If the weight of God's glory sits on us rather lightly, we'll think only of the risks, won't we? But God has said, my name will be glorified. And we cannot be content to let the world go on in its unbelief and in its ignorance. Do you know the life of Henry Martin? He was a missionary to India. Uh, back at the beginning of the 19th century, he was only there for five or six years before he died. In his last year or two, he went to what was then Persia, which is now Iran. And he started translating the Bible into Farsi with the help of a, a friendly Muslim who was a first language speaker. There had been a war between... Um, Iran and Russia and the Russians had lost the battle and someone had written a poem about the battle in which they portrayed Jesus in the fourth heaven reaching up to take the skirt of Muhammad in the sixth or seventh heaven and, and plead with him to stop and the, uh, the pundit that was working with, with uh, Henry Martins told him this and recited it and he saw Henry Martins face fall what have I said You must never speak of my Lord Jesus that way, said Henry Martin. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. God says my name will be great because his glory is the real and ultimate motivation for our mission. That's the first affirmation. Second, the direction of mission is to every nation. My name will be great among the nations. 
the direction of mission is to, into every nation. Now, this is a radical new departure for an Old Testament prophet. Up to this point, all the spiritual traffic, if you like, has been to Jerusalem. They have all come to the temple to worship. Uh, even, even Jewish people coming from other nations have come to Jerusalem to worship. And God's name was vested in the temple. If you want to know the Lord God of Israel, you come to Jerusalem. But now God says, my name will be great, will be worshipped, will be honored among the nations. And Jesus will tell his disciples to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In every culture tomorrow, in every country in the world, pretty much, with one or two exceptions, in some countries many, but in some countries very few, will gather to worship God, but with a big significant difference to Old Testament worship. They will worship God in their own language. Since the day of Pentecost, the gospel of Jesus has been very translatable. The Holy Spirit is able to work in any and every language and culture. And therefore, there has to be a process of contextualization. The gospel, the gospel is as rich as it ever was. And we have to take it into every culture and express it in their language, in their words, in a way that they will understand and identify with. Now, I believe very firmly in the sufficiency of Scripture, and in my years working for the mission, I became more convinced of that, because when you take the Bible into another culture and open it up with other people in that culture, they spot things that you've never spotted before. You see, the Bible speaks into every culture, and it has something to say about the sins of every culture and the issues of every culture. And we find God's word to be this wonderfully rich, dynamic, powerful word that is speaking in every culture and every generation. The problem is, in the world of world mission, we are in danger of forgetting that in the age of globalization. Now, globalization does wonderful things, doesn't it? You can zoom your missionary on the other side of the world. I took a seminar on the plant course, and uh, Ruben Sewa was joining in the late evening from Manila. I had never expected that when I went to London Seminary that day. Uh, it's extraordinary what we can do, isn't it? We can jump on a plane and live in a tin can for 24 hours and be on the other side of the planet. But in mission, globalization can also be an arrogant force. You see, it assumes that people have to learn English to hear the gospel. Uh, it assumes that they have to learn French or Spanish or one of the other big global languages. Uh, to be trained for ministry, we almost certainly assume that so that they can read our books written by Western writers to understand our culture in order to get hold of the truth. The danger is that we present the gospel as a Western religion, which it never was. The gospel didn't come from the West. The gospel came to the West. And people hear the message, the mistaken message, that somehow they have to adopt our culture and our ways and our methods in order to know Jesus. When the Reformation came to Britain, William Tyndale did the most spiritually radical thing. He translated the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. 
That was a radical spiritual act. And because of that, a, a reformation spread through England and into Scotland and, and Wales as well. But when we went to Ireland, the reformation never took root in Ireland. Do you know why? Tyndale was working in the, the 1520s, um, that sort of period. It took 150 years before the Protestant churches in Ireland translated the Bible into Irish Gaelic. And the gospel, you know, the, the Reformation, the great truths of the Reformation never took root in Ireland outside of the pale in Dublin because of that language barrier. And there was so much persecution of Catholics by the Protestants, but by the time they got the Bible in their language, they didn't want to know about it. What a mistake. We need to recommit ourselves to doing mission among the nations. That is, in their culture, in their language. Missionaries go to serve, to learn. Not just to fly in and start teaching, but to learn. To love another culture. Not to be continually writing home and saying, send us Marmite and tea bags urgently. You know. Continually to love that culture. And to identify with those that they reach. Paul says these wonderful words to the Galatians. He says, become like me, for I became like you. He says that in Galatians 4. He didn't say, become a Jew like me, and then you can be a Christian. The whole direction of his entire letter to the Galatians is in the opposite direction. No, the gospel must be yours. It can be Galatian churches that believe this gospel and are justified by faith alone. I want to look to all the young people here who've got life ahead of them and say, are there among you people who will dedicate your life to another culture, to learning the language, Going to live in another culture, to learn from that culture, to find its great strengths and its riches. Willing to live at a different pace, in different clothes, with different internet connections and streaming speeds. Eating different food. Celebrating a different history. So you don't have to celebrate Bonfire Night and all the rest of it. But going and celebrating their festival. So that over the years, you win the right to express the gospel within their culture. God says to Malachi, my name will be great among the nations. That is our challenge, to live among the nations with the gospel. Third, the task of mission is the proclamation of Christ. The task of mission is the proclamation of Christ. And I'm picking up here the phrase, from where the sun rises to where it sets, which might not seem terribly obvious. That is a phrase we find several times, particularly in the book of Psalms. You'll find it in uh, Psalm 113, Psalm, uh, Psalm 50. And in Psalm 19, King David writes about revelation. He writes, first of all, about general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, he talks about you know, how the sun passes across the heavens. He talks about how, how the made things have no speech. They use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. That is true, isn't it? Paul says to the Romans that God's invisible qualities have been understood from what he has made. 
We can see that God is real because of the way that he's made the world, because of the way he's made you and me. Uh, These things reveal his truth in general revelation. And people have looked at God's general revelation, but they have not understood who God is. Because we can only make sense of the glory of God in creation as we put alongside it the truth of God in Scripture, uh, which is special revelation. So the law of the Lord is perfect, says the second half of, of, of Psalm 19. And just as God's general revelation has gone from the place where the sun rises to the place where it sets, so also God's special revelation must go on that same journey to every place that all may hear the truth of the gospel for the first time. We must preach the riches of Christ from the whole of scripture to people who have no grasp of it. I remember Phil saying when he was translating Judges that he was... Um, he asked his, his friend who was working with him, what do you make of the God of judges? He said, he's very patient, isn't he? <laughs> Incredibly patient. Exactly. That's what it's all about. That's why we need the book of Judges, isn't it? We need the whole truth and take it to the whole world. Now, our postmodern culture says nonsense. We live in a pluralistic society. What right have you got to go to a Hindu or a Buddhist and tell them what they must believe. Leave them alone. That's their choice. Let them carry on as they are. Except that that Hindu, that Buddhist, has never heard of the grace of God in Christ. For that is what is unique to Christianity, isn't it? Every world religion is geared to doing something to please their gods or to satisfy their spiritual desires. And their gods and their desires will never be satisfied by what they're doing. It is the grace of God that makes the gospel unique. And we must go to the nations and see, come and see what God has done. Religion says do and Christianity says done. Done in Christ. Our God is not far away and unknowable. He became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. So that we could see his glory full of grace and truth. And you know the grace of God is not just God's attitude to sinners. Amazing grace. That uh, just describes the way that God deals with me. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not just an attitude, it's a power isn't it? The power of God's grace is a living, vital, active work through his church, changing the world. It is God's power that awakens the spiritually dead and delivers from the dominion of darkness. We cannot keep the power of the grace of God a secret. We would be doing wrong if we kept this to ourselves. We are called to proclaim it from where the sun rises to where it sets. The task of mission is the proclamation of Christ. Fourth, And briefly, the goal of mission is the worship of God. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Now that sounds rather strange, doesn't it, to our New Testament ears. God is using prophet's language when he speaks to Malachi, language that Malachi will be able to deal with. Old Testament worship 
um, was characterized by burning incense as an offering of prayer to God, a symbol of prayers being offered up to God, and sacrifices were the offerings that they brought in their worship. And those things happened in Jerusalem. But now God says, in every place, in every country of the world, there will be a pure offering brought to me. What is he talking about? Well, the problem is, you see, that throughout history, in every culture, people have turned to paganism. Worshippers have deviated from the true worship of God that was received way back in the days of, of Noah uh, and, and maybe even Adam and Eve as they learnt to worship God and know him as sinners. And they have deviated from that, away from worshipping their creator, to worshipping created things. Therefore, the goal of Christian mission is to bring a pagan world from their pagan worship to worship the living God. Now, there may be one or two people here who are familiar with um, the work of uh, Dan Strange. Dan was vice principal at Oak Hill and now teaches on Crossland's training. He's written some pretty massive books and some simpler and clearer, and he has built his career on this idea of what he calls Christian worship being the subversive fulfillment of pagan worship. I think he's right, but I hesitate to try and sum him up in two sentences. He's got a brain the size of a house, and I really haven't, but let's have a go. What he means by this is, is why do people worship pagan idols? They worship pagan idols because they are built with the image of God in them, and they're, they're made to worship God, but they satisfy that desire for worship with the wrong thing. So they turn from God to idols. They send it in the wrong direction. Our mission is to fulfill their desire to worship by subverting their pagan religion. Subversive fulfillment. So we subvert their religion by pointing them to the God of all grace who has made one perfect offering for sin. The gospel delivers people from the bondage of dead religion and sets them free to worship as God intended. Some of you will have heard Andrew this afternoon mention my friend Stephen in the Gambia. Stephen Kamaya heads up the Gambian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, and he's been working there for about a quarter of a century. I've been out to visit him, and he's a very dear friend. In one of his early prayer letters, he described a student summer camp. They are in a culture that's sort of folk Muslim with some animal traditional religion mixed in. And people came along who were not Christians. They came to the camp, and they were saved during the camp. Now, how do you show that you've been saved? Well, of course, we would say as Good Grace Baptists, you, you go to your church elders and you get baptized, don't you? Yes, of course you do. But you also have a bonfire. <clears throat> this is not in pure church, but um, <laughs> uh, what I mean by that is at the end of camp, they, they had a bonfire, as you often do. And those who had been saved during the camp came to testify to how they were turning their back on African traditional religion. And they stood in front of the bonfire and spoke of how they'd been saved and then they took off their juju bracelets and threw them into the flames. And they took off their fetish charms and they threw them into the flames. They said, I don't need to fear those gods anymore. I've been delivered from the powers of darkness. The goal of mission is that in every place, people of every nation should discover pure worship. 
We lead people to the one pure offering of Jesus for us at the cross. For he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the goal of mission is that in every place that pure offering, that's what we're going to name tomorrow in church, isn't it? The pure offering of Christ is lifted up as our only claim. The fulfillment of every human desire to be right with God. The goal of mission is the worship of God in every place. Incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Finally, very, very quickly, the zeal of God will achieve this. Because my name will be great, says God, among the nations. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now the problem in the West is that the Christian church has been swept up by the spirit of the Enlightenment, the can-do mentality of secularism, that says, if we just have a little bit more science and technology, if we just have more human initiatives and action plans, we can do anything. We are capable of changing the world. And sometimes that mentality has infected the Christian church, hasn't it? Especially in the task of world mission. So that somehow somebody stands up and sets up a franchise, runs a conference that says, here is the silver bullet for reaching your community and planting a thousand churches and, and seeing a hundred thousand people saved in your city or what have you. Please don't fall into that trap. We look at the scale of the task and we know ourselves to be weak. Yeah? We are weak, but he is strong, and his strength is made perfect in weakness. The God who can allow Ken Elliott to be kidnapped back in 2016 and kept alive under a square of tarpaulin up in the Malian desert and brought back safely to his family. Did you see him giving his testimony at the Keswick Convention? You can, you can go back and watch it on YouTube. It's a wonderful moment to see Ken and Jocelyn restored. For our God is the God of all strength in our weakness and our vulnerability. God has resolved that his name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. And worshippers from every nation will come to him through the pure offering of Jesus. His zeal, his strength, his power, his grace will accomplish this. Why? For who is he? He is the Lord Almighty. And nothing and no one will be able to stand in his way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to believe these great truths. They move our hearts. They encourage us to go home looking to you in our weakness. Lord, be our strength. Give us courage to take the gospel out into our communities. Give us courage to serve you tomorrow in the name of Jesus. And let his name be lifted high in every church here tomorrow. And Father, be in our hearts moving and convicting and preparing more people to go and serve you in the work of cross-cultural mission. That every nation, in every nation, a pure offering might be brought to you and worshippers might be found in every language and every culture for the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.